This morning we're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and loves God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Well, good morning, Providence. Thank you, Jared, for reading. My name is also Jared. Runs in the church family, I guess. Hey, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be with you. And as Andrew said earlier, we are talking about love today. Or maybe it was Gabe that said it. Whatever the case, that's what we're talking about today. Um, I don't know about you, uh, I've been having fun going through this Life with God series. You know, the idea behind it um, is one of, uh, oftentimes, in our faith, um, or as we follow Jesus, a lot of times we can uh, kind of step back and not see it for what it truly is, and we can start making it into this rote kind of religious activity, this way, this this lifestyle, but not a lifestyle empowered by Jesus, a lifestyle of what we should do, how we should look, how we should talk, and all of this stuff. And these things are other than what Christianity actually is, with, which is at its core life with God. And so we've been experiencing some of that together. Andrew had mentioned uh, about the reading plan that, that Psalm 136 is going to come up this week. Uh, it's been fun for me to just get some life from reading and studying some of those scriptures on our reading plan. It's been fun for me to go with our city group and talk through uh, some of the curriculum that we have in this resource book. It's been very life-giving. And just to, just to ask God as I get up in the morning, as I drive somewhere, as I walk into a coffee shop, God, what would you have for me here? What would you be doing for me? And I'm hope. I'm hopeful that maybe you've experienced some of that life too, that maybe you've experienced life from his word. Maybe you've experienced God speaking to you in a clearer way. It's kind of fun when you wake up every morning to know, hey, God is with me and he's trying to do something in me and through me. And so uh, with that in mind, we want to take that lens and look at love this morning, the topic of love. Now, here's the thing. So we live in some interesting times right now. I would say that we fight and we pick sides and spew hate about anything and everything. Like, you either love Nebraska football or you hate it. Almost all of us hate it this morning, right? You either love Donald Trump or you hate him. You either love what Colin Kaepernick stands for or kneels for or you hate him, right? You either uh, love the idea of vaccines or you hate them. If you're a parent, you either love the idea of co-sleeping with your kid or or you think you would never, ever do that, ever. If you don't know what that means, just wait a couple years. Uh, If you have kids, moms talk about it all the time. If 
for some of you, you, you love the idea of a traditional college degree and other people, you think that's a waste of time, right? For some of you, you're all about natural health and holistic health and other people think that's a hoax and they are more about American traditional medicine. Have I triggered anybody yet? It seems like um, people are ready to die on these hills. As a matter of fact, you go on social media, look on message boards, look on posts on Facebook and Twitter, and, and people seem like they're about willing to die on these hills. Essentially, we have become experts at spewing hate at one another. We disagree about everything, right? But there is one thing that we agree on. We agree on love. Or maybe better put, we agree that love is a good idea. We might not agree on what love is, but we agree that love is a good idea. We all want it. We all think others should do it. We all think um, we deserve it to some degree. And at the end of the day, uh, no matter where you fall politically, no matter what you think of Colin Kaepernick, or whether you think essential oils are a hoax, or you think they're a lifesaver, a supernatural miracle worker, um, one thing that we can all agree on is that love is a good thing. It's why Probably 95% of the movies out there have a love story in them, even though they have killing throughout, right? There's a love story there. It's why University of Florida researchers found out that, that when it comes to pop songs that were written, whether it was clear back in the 60s or whether it's in the 2000s, well over 50% of pop songs that are released in a given year are about love or relationships. We can all agree that we want love. We desire it and we want to experience it for ourselves. Now, do you see the, the conflict that's here? That we watch love stories, we sing love stories, we talk about love stories, we all desire this love, but at the same time, in our actions and in our relationships, a lot of times we don't actually experience it or give it. And a lot of times, I would say that instead of feeling loved... As individuals, a lot of times instead we feel insecure, we feel lonely, we feel, quite frankly, unloved. And so I think that the desire for love, on one hand, in our real-life real experience or lack of experience of love, presents this problem or this tension, and I believe that the Bible actually has a response for this that brings us together. So whether you are an adamant studier of the Bible here this morning, or whether you've never opened a Bible in your life, I would ask that you would pause and give just a second to hear the truth or the argument that the Bible is going to present, that God, what is God's answer for this tension. And so we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, like we read earlier. We're going to see it in three parts. And we're going to see the first part is going to be uh, uh, the origins of love, the second part is going to be the definition of love. And the last part is going to be the power to love. So we're going to see the origins, the definition, and then the power to love. Now here's a fact that we, that we kind of have to face. That, that in any culture, in any time period throughout history, there has been no culture. Even though cultures have all desired to love, there has been no culture that's mastered it. And although we look to be or claim to be progressing as a culture, I don't think any, anyone from history, if they were transplanted into our culture, would look at us and say, man, you guys have really figured this out. You guys have, have really mastered this. As a matter of fact, they might say quite the opposite, right? And so 
what we're going to do is we're going to find out in this passage that love is actually possible. Love can actually be experienced and that it can only completely and fully be experienced if you are living life with God. So, Let's look at the origins of love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. We're going to have them up here on the screens, I believe. We're going to look at just the first two verses, what it says. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and, and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is Love. We're talking about the origins of love. Now, the man who penned this with the inspiration of, of God, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his name was John. John was a friend of Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three years and did life with him for three years while he was doing his ministry. And John, um, he wrote several books of the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John, which you're probably familiar with, the, the, the verse John 3.16. That comes in the Gospel of John. He also wrote several other letters, for our, uh, several, several other books, some of them letters. And this is one of the letters that he wrote. First John, um, he wrote it to the church in Ephesus. John was an old guy when he wrote this, probably in his 80s when he wrote this. He wrote this to this church that he dearly loved, that he pastored, that he had overseen for some time, and he wanted to write this letter to to pass to these this church in Ephesus and he wanted them to pass it around to the to the cities around him so that they could grasp some of these deep truths. And one of the the clearest things that he tries to communicate, he tries to help them get their heads around is this idea of love. Now, John is no stranger to love. In the Gospel of John, which I mentioned earlier, love is mentioned 57 times in that book. In 1 John, which is much, much shorter, it's only a couple pages if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, 1 John, uh, love is mentioned 46 times in 1 John. And then just in the six verses that Jared read earlier, love is mentioned 13 times times. So John calls himself, in the gospel, he calls himself the apostle that Jesus loved. And John addresses the, the readers in this letter as his beloved. So what I'm trying to make a case for, if you haven't picked up on this, is that John is kind of the love guy, okay? He's an expert of sorts. If you want to figure out how to throw a football, you go to Tom Brady and you ask him because he knows, or Aaron Rodgers or whoever. Just don't get mad about it. You get the idea, right? You go to Tom Brady because he knows how to do it. If you want to learn how to roast and brew coffee, you go across the street to Archetype because they've got it figured out. If you want to learn how to uh, do a heart transplant, you go to UNMC. If you want to learn how to be a hipster, you talk to Gabe, right? Like that's just, you know who to go to because you know who the experts are. John is the love guy. And here's what John says about love from the very beginning. He says this very clear right off in verse 7. He says, love is from God. The origins of love is from God. So if you've loved or you've experienced love in any way, a true love, God is behind it. And and John makes this argument and he says, whoever loves has been born of God and whoever doesn't love hasn't been born of God. Now, this is a pretty simple argument and this is what he's saying. He's saying, do you truly love? Then you have been born of God. God lives inside of you. Do you not love? Do you truly not love? Then God doesn't live inside of you. That's as simple as he puts it. And you read that and it makes you pause. This week I know it made me pause. And you think, wait, do I really love people? 
Like, that's probably a good thing for us to actually wrestle with here this morning. Like, do we actually love people? As I've been studying this passage this week, it's come over and over and over again into my head like, man, do I actually love my wife? Do I really love my kids? The staff team that I work with here, do I actually love them? Or, or better yet, the people who aren't really like me or the people who might be kind of hard to deal with or maybe they're just different than me, do I actually love them? I think it's a, a diagnostic question that's probably good for all of us to consider So just wrestle in that. Let that stir up in your soul a little bit, and we're going to keep going here. It says, so John makes this argument that love is from God, and if you have love, you you are from God, or you are born of God, and he grounds this. The foundation for this is in one short three-word phrase that he mentions here. It is, God is love. Now, you've probably heard that phrase before, whether inside or outside of the church, that God is love. But when you hear it, it sounds maybe a little bit mushy, maybe a little bit confusing and kind of out there. Like, what does that actually mean? So uh, let me tell you what I believe this means after studying. Actually, you know what? Let me let John Piper tell you what this means, because I studied it, and I think that he came up with the best explanation of this, uh, of what God is love means. And I think we have it right here. He says, if you're talking about God is love and love being from God, he says he doesn't mean that love is from God the way letters are from a mailman or even letters are from a friend. He means that love is from God the way heat is from a fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light and fire gives heat Because it is heat. Providence, that means that any act that comes from God is filled with love. If you look throughout history, any way that God has acted toward any people has been laced with love. That means that God in his character is not actually able to do anything that is unloving. That means that any thought or word that God has spoken or action that he has done throughout all of history is completely and utterly loving because by his nature, God is love. That's a pretty cool thought, right? So you see why John would say, if you love, you have been born of God. And if you don't, you haven't been born of God. It's because the origin of love is God. Godly things are loving things. They're the same thing. So this this idea that John puts out there, there's this profound concept that is implied in here when he uses this born language that he talks about. And that idea is that if we trust in Jesus, if we surrender our life to him, and if Jesus comes and lives inside of us, if we go through that death to life process like Andrew talked about last week, when that happens, you actually experience this new birth in Jesus. 
and you are changed. And when you experience this new birth and you're changed, you actually start to bear resemblance because you are born. You have a new birth from God. You bear resemblance to your father. So let me, let me explain real quick. So I had this, um, we had this baby, okay, five weeks ago. Maybe you heard. It was our fourth. Uh, so we're kind of getting into the pattern here. And here's the deal by, from kids that are born of me, are born from me, like, they bear resemblance to me, okay? So, unfortunately, in some ways. So, Emmy, this baby that was born, when she was born, she was large because I'm a large person. Nine pounds and six ounces, to be exact. That's a large kid. When Emmy was born, when she came out, her head was large. Fortunately, not as large as her older brothers were, but her noggin is large because my noggin is large. It's the way it works. And when you look at her eyes, you look at her and like, those look like your eyes. When her hair color that you can barely see with a microscope, but if you look at it, it's like, oh, her hair color is kind of blondish red because my hair color is like that. And when you look at them, they are born of me. And so they bear my resemblance. They are like me. I suppose my wife did some work along the way. They probably look a little bit like her too. And maybe... Technically, they were born of her. I get that. But you get, my, you get my point, right? So in this new birth, which we'll expound on a little bit later, God is our heavenly father, and we become changed, and he passes down his resemblance to us. This God is love resemblance. Our disposition changes. We are transformed, and it changes into our nature, and we start loving like our heavenly father. When we experience this life with God, we experience love toward us and love from us. The origin of love is God. And for us to love fully, we have to be changed by him. Now, some of you might be hearing this and thinking, okay, um, I, okay, it's a nice thought from the Bible, but how, do you really, how can you really prove that God is love? Like, what, what are you basing this off of, really? Like, I've experienced some things in my life. Maybe you're thinking, I've experienced some things in my life. I've seen some things that maybe would point to the fact that God is not loving. Like, I'm not sure I buy into it. Well, let me uh, show you in the very next section, in the next couple verses, um, why I think that we can say that God is love, why the origins of love comes from God. And that is by God's definition of love, which is what we're going to talk about next, this definition of love. So let's look at the next two verses, verses 9 and 10. And uh, let me read these to you. It says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. This is his definition right here. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, now John defines God's version of love. My question for you, maybe to start off, is what is your definition of love? Like, have you, ever, have you ever thought about it? Gabe asked a question before, have you fallen in love? What's your kind of baseline for what love actually is? Well, I consulted our friend Miriam Webster, and, um, and this is what uh, Webster said, that love is a feeling of strong or constant affection for a person. A feeling of co- strong or constant affection for a person. Okay, that's one. Then I looked up on the internet to try to come up with a couple others, and uh, there was a list on msn.com. I don't know if that's trustworthy or not, but this is what they said, a couple ideas. 
Love is seeing a person every day and still missing them when you're apart. Some of you dating couples are getting butterflies in your stomach right now. So special. Uh, Love is sharing the covers. Mm. Love is smiling at them while they're asleep. That sounds creepy to me, not loving. Love is selfless. Okay. I also stumbled across in a marriage book. um, There was, they asked, uh, kids what their definition of love is, and this is probably the best one. A seven-year-old boy named Danny, he said, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Um, So some of these are pretty good. Some of these are pretty cheesy, and some of these are, are really pretty shallow, but I want us to consider what the Bible's definition of love actually is. And if you want to know what the Bible's definition of love is, you look no further than the story of Jesus. If you want to know how God is love, if you want to know why God is love, if you want to see a display, a definition played out right in front of you, you look no further than the story of Jesus. This is how God has communicated love to us and for us. So he says in that last verse that we read, it says, In verse 10, in this is love. This is a definition. Not that we have loved God, we didn't love him first, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he says love is defined by a couple things. One is that Jesus loved us before we ever loved him. It's that God loved us. And the second thing is that is special about this definition of love is this idea of propitiation. Now, doesn't that strike a heart chord? You're like, wait, what does that mean? So let me explain this to you. Um, this word propitiation uh, means to appease someone else's wrath. Uh, maybe a simpler way to say it is that imagine <clears throat> that there is an offended party and they have wrath or punishment coming toward someone else because they have been offended, and then someone steps in and, and, and appeases the offended party so everything is good to go. It's okay. The offense seems to be erased in a way. Now, in John's day, this would have been an interesting concept because it, this word, propitiation, was, was fairly common, or this idea was fairly common. See, the, in the Greek context that they lived. The gods were, uh, how would I say it? They're, they were kind of, uh, they were kind of moody. Um, they were a little bit hard to please at times, and they could be harsh. And so people kind of walked around on eggshells in these Greek cultures wanting to get gods to bless them. So they, keep, they kept trying to do things to please them. And they would do this by giving them sacrifices, by sacrificing things like an animal or blood or giving them food or some sort of sweets or something like that. And <clears throat> this was their way of, of appeasing the gods. Now, this was their idea of propitiation. However, there is a complete depth and meaning of love that comes from God's version that is completely different, and I would say completely better. You see, the Bible would say that from the beginning, in the very beginning of the Bible, the first humans, Adam and Eve, that walked the earth, Genesis 3, it would say that humans have actually rebelled against God. They've gone the other direction. <clears throat> And after you read Adam and Eve, you go on to the next stories about God having his people Israel. And the reality is, have you ever noticed that those people aren't lauded as heroes in the Bible? His nation isn't the perfect child. They actually 
consistently rebel against him and they walk away from him. And the, as the story goes, God always has to come back and save them again over and over. They're rebellious. Even if you go to the New Testament, you look at Jesus' own disciples. They were unfaithful to him at times. And if you fast forward all the way until now, you have all of us standing here and we are in the very same way rebellious against God. It says that we have all fallen short of God's standard. As Andrew mentioned last week when he was talking about uh, death to life, uh, and it says in Ephesians that we are dead in our sins and that we walk in those things. In other words, if God is here, we all have a natural tendency to walk this direction, not that direction. We walk away from him. The Bible says in, in Romans 6, that the wages or the payment of that sin or that rebellion is actually death. We deserve death. Not only are we walking in death, as Andrew said, but there is an eternal death that is coming to us. And just as things look completely bleak for all of us, Jesus intervened in the picture. <clears throat> There's a, a, a beautiful and tragic story uh, that's told by a man named Ernest Gordon that I think puts some uh, color to this picture. Um, Gordon was a World War II soldier, uh, a Scottish man, and he fought in World War II. And um, what happened to him and a handful of his buddies is they were captured by Japanese military forces. Uh, Gordon wrote a book, and he, he kind of records this. And um, what happened was they were captured by Japanese forces and they were uh, made to build uh, a railway or a a railroad through the landscape and the jungles of Thailand. And so they were kind of in a POW camp, but they were put to work every day. They didn't just sit there. And through this, their working conditions, he describes, are absolutely horrific. They're terrible. The treatment that they got from the military officers was absolutely terrible terrible, like unheard of bad. Gordon describes that all of these uh, Scottish men just had this deep-seated hatred for these officers that were commanding over them, that were telling them what to do and putting them through this POW situation. And Gordon, um, he tells this story, uh, a remarkable story, that at the end of one of the workdays, they were uh, done and, and these Scottish soldiers were lined up at the end because it was it was quitting time. They were done for the day, and as one of the Japanese officers, um, as he caught wind that they took inventory of all their tools at the end of the day, and he caught wind um, that heard that one of the shovels wasn't accounted for. So they had all these tools. These the shovel wasn't accounted for, and so uh, this officer instantly got irate and he started berating these people saying, saying, where is this thing? Like who took it? Who hid this? Where did it go? And his tone got more upset and more upset until he threatened them. He said, if someone doesn't tell me where this shovel is, I am going to kill all of you. And they knew he wasn't joking. And as they waited and waited for somebody to take responsibility, one man stepped forward And just as you would imagine would happen, instantly he was put to death on the spot. And Gordon and his friends uh, were in shock. They were in shock that their friend had just died in front of them, but they were maybe more in shock later on that night when they found out that the shovels had actually been miscounted. All of them were accounted for, and as they heard that, they realized that their friend 
stepped forward on their behalf as an innocent man, just like they were, so all of them wouldn't be killed. He paid the price. He took on the wrath of this Japanese officer so all of his friends could survive. Providence, this helps us understand propitiation. When the wrath of an authority is appeased by a man. But, here's what I would say. I would say that God's version of propitiation is so much greater than this story because the wrath in this story, is, in, in God's version, is not from an angry, power-hungry, moody man, but it's from a holy and righteous God who has been offended over and over again. And in God's version of propitiation, it's not a a lineup of innocent men standing before him, but rather it is a lineup of all of us, and we are all standing guilty as charged before him. And in God's version of propitiation, it's not a single man, a single innocent man that steps forward to take this on, but rather God himself steps into the story. That God's own wrath is paid for by sending his son into the story. And he, Jesus, the only innocent man, is the one who steps forward amidst a lineup of all guilty people. All of us being guilty. And Jesus steps forward to pay the price so we could be free. Providence, this is love. Our sins, our rebellion have been paid for by Jesus stepping forward, by his own sacrifice. Theologian John Stott describes it this way. He says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is the definition of love and a prime example of how we know love in God, that Jesus, loving first, came to us and stepped forward, putting himself in the place that we deserved to be. You see, God's love initiates. God's love costs everything. God's love is unconditional. God's love pursues even enemies. God's love forgives. God's love reconciles. God's love takes rebellious, dead people, unfaithful people, and steps in and sacrifices so those dead rebellious people can be made alive so he can welcome them into his family and he can give them a seat at his table and call them sons and daughters. That is the gospel. That's good news. And propitiation providence is not just a theological concept. It's for you. God had wrath coming for you. God's judgment was coming for you. And then he sent his son for you. Jesus stepped onto the earth in part for you. 
the love of Jesus is extreme as love can get, but it's such good news because it's actually for you and I. It's actually for us. And if you experience, when you experience it, it changes you. When God comes to live inside of you and you experience this new birth, you experience life with God as we talk about it, it changes you. You experience love toward you. You experience love going out of you. And that's what these last two verses are about. We saw the definition of love in Jesus. Now we're going to see the power to love in these last two verses. So let's read verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And and so you see in that first line right there, there's kind of two concepts that kind of come together as one concept. He says, John is saying they're not separate things. You don't either get loved or you love others. He's saying, if you're loved by God, you will love others. That's just how it is. He says, you are ought to love in that verse, but ought isn't maybe like we think of a duty or an obligation. Um, Ought is, I heard it explained one time to me, uh, someone said, uh, ought is like a bird has wings, so a bird ought to fly. A fish ought to swim. It only makes sense because of how they're naturally made up. And when we experience a new birth in Jesus, we have this capacity to love. We ought to love. That's what happens if we experience life with God. Now, I think this, and a lot of this love talk, kind of brings up a little bit of an elephant in the room, and that is um, that, that Christians aren't always loving or aren't, aren't always perceived as loving. Um, the Barna Research Group um, uh, a couple of guys from Barna, Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman, uh, have written some books, and they talked to young American people uh, who don't affiliate with church, and they were asked to describe uh, Christians. And at the top of their list, this is like 80% of the people said this, 90% of the people said this. There's a lot of people. They used, these are some of the words or phrases they used to describe Christians. They said, judgmental, hypocritical, insensitive to others, and arrogant. Now, okay, Christians in the room. Now, I get it that uh, there can be some misconceptions at time when it comes to this. Like you can, if you have core beliefs that are differing from someone else's core beliefs, like it can kind of escalate and things can get weird and people can uh, accuse you of something that maybe you're not guilty of. But at the end of the day, uh, Jesus followers in the room, we're supposed to be the love people. And this is the main ways that people, young people in our country are describing us. That's not okay. Jesus has shown us love so that we can love. Jesus comes to live inside of us and gives us this new birth so that we can love. So we must, as a church family or as your own family or as an individual, we need to at least pause and say, okay, wait, am I actually loving people? Like I know maybe what your knee-jerk reaction is, well, I, yeah, sure, but Can we really pause and say, are we really showing the love of Jesus to the people around us? Is that how people would describe us? And if not, or if that's not how you would describe yourself, um, I think one of two things is the case. 
either you like the idea of Jesus and you kind of have committed to the idea of church and you're not really born of God. God doesn't really live inside of you. That's one option. Or the other option is you have experienced this new birth. God is trying to lead you. God inside of you is trying to speak to you. He's trying to urge you forward. He's trying to develop and grow you in his nature. And you are consistently stiff arming him in this season of life. And you're going the other direction. You're going the way of the culture. You're following other people. You're following your own convictions. You're not following God inside of you. I think that may be the case for many Christians, and I think that at times that's my story as well. So I'd say on a very practical level, man, the next time that maybe somebody critiques you, the next time somebody critiques something that maybe you believe in, man, can you not respond instantly by scoffing at them? And could you take a second and assess, man, am I really being loving right now? Am I really loving people? You know, in this uh, last verse, John says kind of an interesting phrase, um, he says, uh, no one has ever seen God. I don't know if you noticed that when we read it. It's like, wait, what is he talking about? John saw Jesus. Uh, like, why would he put that in there? It seems not to fit. Well, what John is trying to get at is that, yes, there were people that, like, he saw Jesus. Yes, there were people in the Old Testament that saw these visions of, of God, these theophanies. But, but he said, in all of his, like, pure uh, glory, no one has ever actually laid eyes on God completely ever. And we won't until one day when we go to be with him in our glorified state. But he's, he's saying that in this context to say, no one has ever seen God. But when he talks about loving one another, he said, but if people in our culture are going to have a chance to see God, it's going to be by the way that you love each other. No one has seen God, but if you want them to, to, to see God, it's going to be by how you love. So Jesus followers, man, God has loved us. Let us show the love of God, not just by way of, of trying to imitate Jesus, but could we internalize the love that Jesus has given to us? Could we be grateful and thankful for that? And could we let that flow out of us onto other people around us? Now, for people in the room who are not Christians— I just have a couple things to say. The first one is this. Man, as we talk about Christians being perceived as non-loving, could I say that if you were someone here who would jump on the bandwagon with these terms and these phrases and say Christians are judgmental, hypocritical, and all of those kinds of things, could I, we as Providence Church, we want to apologize to you for that. Like, that's not okay. And I'd also say, could you not confuse the pure and perfect love of God with some broken, hurting, maybe misguided, maybe claiming Christian people that maybe that are definitely not loving you like Jesus has offered to love you? So don't maybe mix those two things, but we do uh, want to apologize. Like, that's not okay. But here's the other thing I want to say. Is that in your quest to experience love and and give love, I think that there is one place to find that. And that is in the person of Jesus. It's in the propitiation of Jesus. You see, we're not going to solve this love problem in our world on our own. No one in history has ever been able to do it. And in our current setting, technology is not going to do it. Science is not going to do it. Our progressing 
culture is not going to be able to do it. We need something to fix it for us, or rather we need someone to fix it for us. And I believe that that is Jesus Christ, who loved you, who came to earth for you, and who stepped forward for you to take the penalty for your sins so that you could be free, so that you could be reunited to God. And if you want to experience this love, Jesus with open arms is inviting you to come toward him and experience this love that's better than what the world has to offer. If you want love, give your life to Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for this uh, display of love. We thank you for the reality of love. It's not a concept that we just talk about, but it is something that is real, that's come for us, that's happened to us, that is actually working in us right now. Jesus, I pray that we would follow the convictions that your spirit are giving to our hearts right now. And God, I pray that if there are people here um, who have not trusted in Jesus, God, I pray that they would um, be able to hear what you are calling them into and that they could step forward boldly, Jesus. And I pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.